Greetings and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast, Season 2, Episode 47. This podcast is all about providing clarity, insight, and encouragement for life and mission. And my name is Aaron Santemeyer, and I'm going to be your host. Today, we have the phenomenal opportunity to have a friend of the podcast, Dick Foth, with us back for a session of Back Channel with Foth. And then we jump in to an interview with Pastor David Mathis. Dick, so excited to be back with you again today. Thanks, Aaron. My joy. I am, I am, drinking, I am drinking Kenyan tea. There you go. You know that, but, uh, but you know, it's lovely. Good deal. Good deal. Dick, got two questions for you um, today. The first question is, uh, we're quickly approaching the holiday seasons. Um, how did you navigate creating family traditions in the face of ministry demands? Um, and how do you, yeah, that's the first, they have a two-part question, but that's the first of the part of the two-part. Um, just first for understanding, in our family, in Ruth and I have now been married a few more months than 58 years. In our family, we had four children within a seven-year period, and now they are, the youngest is 49, so I'm yeah. really feeling it. <laughs> and, and Ruth was the one who brought the traditions to the family. Mm-hmm. I had one tradition that was, um, that was framed when we were in India in the late 40s. I don't know where my folks got the Christmas tree, um, but you didn't have flock you could spray on or ornaments. But what you did have then was ivory snowflakes. And wow. if you whip up ivory snowflakes and and then spread it on the branches of the trees, it hardened and actually <laughs> looked like snow. But your whole house smelled like soap for a month. And uh, so <laughs> that, that was one of our traditions. Um, uh, first of all, uh, the uh, family... And and we're talking about family versus ministry. Yeah. I would say, let's change that paradigm. Let's say, and many of you know this and have heard it, family is ministry. Family is the first line of investment. Yeah. Not the first line of defense, but the first line of investment when it comes to ministry. When I understand that my family is my ministry, um, and that when I get that right, the rest of what we call ministry or service works so much better. And the challenge is that it's not a one-day deal, and families, like any relationships, are, are dynamic, and they're close in, so they know your warts and your flaws and all that stuff, so that makes it harder. But I think Pastor that, David that having tradition... In a family, and his discussions gives points of hope of humility for for spouses and children to look forward to. Yeah. Um, when it comes, part of the lens through which the children see quote the ministry is what happened where I was when I grew up, yeah. and my experience with missionary kids as one, which I was, or later as a college president where I met a bunch of them, is that they really were enthusiastic about ministry, or not so much. <laughs> there, wasn't, there wasn't much in the middle. Now, that could be an overgeneralization, but it's true. And all of that does not land on parents, okay? Hmm. But, it, but uh, you know, I went, like many of the children of the folks listening, I went to a British boarding school 300 miles away from my, or 150 miles away in the 40s. It was like 4,000 miles away. <laughs> Um, and, and that has a piece that plays into it, but, but the traditions of what do we do at Christmas? What do we do, um, just as a family, do we write letters to each other? Do we do whatever? That's a big piece. Let me just toss something out, uh, very quickly. I walked into the house one day when I was a young church planter, Ruth, Ruth quote, had these four kids at home. I'm out learning new stuff, having business lunches. And I walked in and she said to me, and she's, She's a contemplative. She doesn't run off at the mouth like I do. And she said this, why do you give your prime time, Dick, to people you hardly know? Mm. And the kids and I get the leftovers. Wow. And my response was, well, Ruth, do you, like, do you have another question? (laughs) (laughs) So that framed it for me. Let let me just recommend a book. And folks could download this, I'm sure, on Kindle or audio. For sure. Excuse me. Go ahead. No, it's good. Yeah. Okay. This is called The Three Big Questions for a Frantic Family. Hmm. Some of your listeners know it. This is by a fellow named Patrick Lencioni, Mm -hmm. and he's a consultant. 
He's a, a Catholic fellow and married with four children, four boys. And, and the three questions that he asks in this, and this is a book that centers around these, are these. Uh, in order to restore sanity and clarity to our families, we must answer and act upon three big, simple questions. One, what makes your family unique? If you don't know what differentiates your family from others, you won't have a basis for making decisions. Wow. Two, what is your family's top priority, i.e. rallying cry, right now? You need to know what the single most important objective is for your family over the next two to six months. Hmm. Three, how do you talk about and use the answers to these questions? If you answer the first two questions, but don't use those answers in daily, weekly, monthly decision-making, it'll yield no benefits. Wow. Now, this is a person who consults as a business leader with Fortune 500 companies and so forth, but he has this other track yeah. that's about family. The three wow. big questions for a frantic family by Patrick Lencioni, L-E-N-C-I-O-N-I. Awesome. We will put that put that in the show notes. Um, Dick, do you have anything more on the, the, the topic of ministry? And yeah, it, you shared a little bit about maybe seeing it maybe from a lens of verses that it's it's together. Any other thoughts? Yeah, I think I think um, sometimes we think in families, if we just get this template right, then everything will turn out great. And the uh, the demands of calling, I don't care whether it's ministry or tracking rhinos in Africa, if I feel called to it, it's the driver in my life. So for a lot of us, and I can only speak for my for a lot of us, that calling uh, subsumes everything else, in, including family a lot of times. And what we learn as we go along, and if we have children in the family, is that we need to be investing. We're not spending time with family. We are investing time because, I mean, the folks listening know this. You can be at home and you're not at home. I mean, your body can be there and your mind can be, well, what are we going to do in the village? Or we got this project going in downtown wherever. And uh, it takes a tremendous amount of discipline and a, and a spouse will call you out a lot of times to to uh, refocus your uh, your frame of reference. I think if we understand that the family that we have chosen, created, bought into, whatever, is the primary thing that God has given us to work with, that helps us. I have a friend. Well, we've had John Ashcroft on here, former attorney general. And John said to me one day, he said, you know, as a grandparents, I'm way more important to my grandchildren than the president of the United States is. And I think we just need to understand that. And the, um, the, uh, let me, let me put it this way. We live in a culture that is so fragmented and a society around the world, so fragmented the children today uh, don't don't get to see a model for what a for what a strong family looks like. I was invited to speak, and I know we're on the clock here, but I was invited to speak five years in a row to AP history classes, advanced placement history classes at a local high school. And the lady who invited me, the teacher, said, "I want you to come and talk about World War II." I said, you know, I'm old, but I wasn't in World War II. I was born in World War II. And she said, yeah, but you got World War II stories. Long story short, I created a talk about the impact of World War II in America on productivity, women in the marketplace, race, and education. So I had this really good talk. But I started out by saying, why is Grandpa in the room today? And I'm speaking to seniors in high school. And they were very respectful. I said, why is Grandpa? And, and I said, essentially, you know, I'm on my... 70 whatever trip around the sun this few years ago and i uh um you know i've been married 52 years we have these four kids and 12 grandkids and all this so i go through my whole talk on world war ii which i thought was pretty good really i yeah <laughs> really good stories and all this and i said any questions and a girl in the back of the class raised her hand and her question about my lecture was this how do you stay married for 52 years? Hmm. Because wow. that's where she is. Yeah. World War II for her might as well have been the Civil War. 
Yeah. But she lives in a place where that question is key. Wow. And so anyway, wow. that's a uh, good word. Just, just don't let your, you know, uh, marriage in ministry is M squared. Yeah. It's, it's part of the same deal. And I better get the first part right so the second part can be effective. Amen. Amen. Dick, enjoy, enjoy, enjoy spending time with you. We're going to go ahead and jump in with our interview today with David Mathis on his book, Humbled. Um, the cover of his book, uh, very unique. It talks about being uh, living in a five-star world. And we jump into our humbling at God's leading. And then how the message of that we're unique and special impacts our view of God. And so enjoyed spending some time with David. Well, there's no time better than now to get started. So here we go. Greetings and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. So excited to have a new friend with us here today, Pastor David Mathis, and uh, to just to spend some time discussing his new book that's coming out, Humbled. Pastor, could you um, just introduce yourself to the audience today? Hi, Aaron. Thanks for having me on. Um, I'm in Minneapolis, Minnesota. My wife is Megan, got four small kids, uh, twin boys, 11, daughter, six, another daughter at age four. And uh, I'm a pastor, along with nine others, or nine total, eight others, at a congregation called Cities Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. And my full-time job is as executive editor at DesiringGod.org. Wow. Very, very cool. Very, very cool. So you have a busy season of life if you have that many young children at home. It, it's a busy season in some ways and a, and a very enjoyable season. It's, it's going by so quickly and uh, we're, we're trying to make the most of it and not wish away these precious days. Hey, isn't that the truth? My kids are now, my daughter is 17 or she's in her senior year. My son's 15. And as you said, those, those years um, definitely, definitely go by, go by mm -hmm. pretty quick. So mm -hmm. David, as I picked up your book and read through the book, um, one of the things that hit me right off the bat was the cover. And um, you had the picture of of five stars, which it seems to be our world today, rating in stars. Um, what do you, what does the cover speak to our culture? Yes. Yeah, so the, uh, the, the cover has, you know, it's got like slots for five stars yeah. and then three of them have been scratched off. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I, I can't take credit for the idea. That was, uh, the way that the, the designer got at this idea of being humbled. Yeah which is getting at a central concept in the book that uh, this is not a full treatment of the virtue of humility, yeah. but it's about the biblical call to humble yourself. That's what it starts. It, it's really a study in the Bible's self-humble language yeah, and, sure. uh, and what it means to come in response to, to being humbled. So, uh, you know, Perhaps you have your three, your four, your five stars, whatever yeah. it is in your own conception of how many stars you have in your life. And God brings about by his kind and severe providence, a humbling that knocks you down to two stars or yeah. to one star or to zero stars. I mean, yeah. the cover is a little bit gracious in that two <laughs> of the gold stars remain. Uh, maybe if I was the designer, I'd have scratched all five out in terms of, you know, the kind of humblings. Yeah. Uh, what it feels like in the moment when our most severe of humblings yeah. come. Yeah. So there's a little bit of grace there on the, on the cover and at least two of the stars remain. But, but the book is not a full treatment of humility. It's about these, these most acutely humbling moments in our lives yeah. and what it means to humble ourselves when God takes the initiative, God breaks in, God breaks the normal pattern and course of our lives with his uncomfortable work. Hmm. And what we're called to by God in scripture uh, in those moments of humbling. Yeah. And so, in, as I read the introduction and end of the book, uh, you eloquently describe, you know, what, what, what were some of the reasons that you decided to write this book and, and get it published in 2021? Could you just share a few of those with us? Yeah, so uh, I mean, on the surface, there are events culturally that perhaps feel humbling, maybe especially for Americans. And I'm talking yeah. to you in Kenya, right. but for, you know, for Americans in particular, with uh, the the response to the COVID, a 
2020 election year. We had people storming the Capitol in January. We had social unrest. So there are these, there are these events culturally. And we, we just celebrated the, or marked yeah. the 20 year anniversary of 9-11. So in my lifetime, I've experienced some nationally humbling events along with this nation. But uh, I don't think it's the distant humblings in the news that most painfully affects our lives. Hmm. It is the personal humblings that are most acutely painful. A cancer diagnosis, yeah. a divorce, loss of a job, loss of a loved one. Those are the humblings yeah. that, that really prick us the most. And so that's what the, what the book's getting at. Even as I introduce it, in the context of the larger cultural humblings or the humblings that are in the news. I, I don't think that's mainly where our humblings are coming from on an individual yeah. level as Christians, but for those painful events in our lives. And the, the origin of the book, <laughs> uh, since college, I've just been reading the Bible every year. Yeah. So uh, it's been about 20 years now of reading through the Bible on an annual basis with little designated texts. Very, very modest designated text for each day. And one thing I couldn't help but notice over the years is this pattern of humble yourselves or they humbled themselves or he humbled himself throughout the biblical narratives going all the way back to Exodus. Yeah. The first mention is Moses face to face with Pharaoh yeah. in Exodus. And then these humble yourself texts are especially uh, dense in Second Chronicles. This is one of the main themes of Second Chronicles, hmm. as the nation spirals downward uh, under wicked leadership and some righteous leadership. Yeah. And then in the teaching of Jesus Himself, this is one of the most repeated teachings of Jesus: the yeah. humble will be exalted, and those who are exalted will be humbled. Yeah. Jesus mentions that in at least three different contexts, and I suspect those who are familiar with Jesus' teaching, when He started to say. That, uh, that the humble will be exalted and the exalted. I, mean, I think people in his audience could finish it out because they probably heard this as one of Jesus' most identifiable and repeated teachings. Yeah. And then we find it again in the Apostle James, yeah. in the Apostle Peter. So biblically, it's a, it's a massive theme. And uh, eventually, in a quintessentially American way, I wanted to ask the question, so, so how do I humble myself? Yeah. And, uh, and I, I was humbled in coming to the answer biblically of what it means to humble myself. Hmm. Biblically, yeah. humbling yourself is not something that we just up and do when we're good and ready. It's not like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm ready to humble myself. Let me, let me do the five-step process. Let me humble myself. and I'll be more humble a month from now or a year from now, whatever. Sure. Biblically, self-humbling is not something that happens on our timetable. It's not something that happens on our initiative. Hmm. And the main lesson, the main discovery for me in setting these humble yourself texts side by side and studying them and meditating on them for a season, that main discovery is that God is the one who takes the initiative hmm. in our self-humbling. Hmm. God first humbles us, not on our timetable. Hmm. We don't choose to start the humbling on a certain day that we put on our calendar. Yeah. God decides he breaks into our lives with his uncomfortable work of humbling yeah. us. And then the question comes to us, okay, now will you humble yourself? Yeah. Will you receive God's uncomfortable work or will you rebel against it? Will you try to explain it away? Will you kick against what God is doing or will you receive even welcome this painful, hurtful, difficult, uncomfortable humbling in your life because of God's good providence and what he's seeking to accomplish. Wow. So that was the main humbling lesson for me yeah. in trying to figure out these humble self texts. Yeah. And the first discovery or lesson that I, I wanted to share in this, this little short book. Wow. And so in the process, you, we've, we've talked, what does, what did you learn about humbling and what does that look like as you've discovered this before we, I, we go into any more questions because it looked as you highlighted it, it can mean different things to different people 
And um, especially in a culture, at least American culture, where we're, we have platforms and we're trying to exalt ourselves, um, not necessarily um, being humbled by, as you said, by God's leading. So what, what did you land on as far as a, a definition of, of humility and being humble? Yeah, so I'm, uh, I, I don't try to venture an exhaustive or final definition of humility sure. yeah. as, as the virtue. I, I really try to lean it on these humble yourself texts. However, um, I think to proceed, you've got to have a working definition, even yeah. if it's pretty thin. Yeah. And uh, I think the first mention of that humble self language where Moses is face to face with Pharaoh yeah. is very instructive and helpful for us. Yeah. So let me give you two texts in that sequence okay. in Exodus. Uh, the first is Exodus 10, verse 3. Seven plagues have happened. Mm-hmm. And now Moses comes before Pharaoh again, before the eighth plague. And he says, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? He's speaking for God. How mm-hmm. long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go. Yeah. So one way to interpret the hardness of heart of Pharaoh or the way in which he is not welcoming God's uncomfortable work is that he will not humble himself. That's one thing hmm. that God is doing in setting the people free is he is humbling Pharaoh. Hmm. Pharaoh hmm. who pretends to be divine. Yeah. So th- this is a power encounter between one who claims to be God, Pharaoh, and Moses, this little prophet coming in saying, I speak for the one who is the true God. Yeah. So Moses introduces this name, Yahweh Hmm. to Pharaoh. And the first time Moses comes before Pharaoh, this is Exodus chapter five. He says, I speak for Yahweh. Yahweh says, let my people go. And this is really instructive. This is, this is programmatic for what happens in the 10 plagues in Exodus five two. Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let the people go. Hmm. So mark that. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you say you don't know Yahweh, you want to know Yahweh? Okay, I'll show you Yahweh. He says, <laughs> I'll show you 10 plagues that deliver my people. And and Pharaoh knows Yahweh well in his power. Pharaoh, Pharaoh does not know Yahweh savingly like hmm. his people do. But he hmm. comes to know Yahweh in his power yeah. through these 10 plagues. And what's, what, what's, what's key here in Exodus chapter 5 is he says, I do not know Yahweh that I should obey his voice. Hmm. So uh, obedience, I think, hmm. is at the heart of <laughs> my working definition of humility. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, obedience would say, I acknowledge that God is God yeah. and I acknowledge that I am not God. So humility hmm. says he is God. I am not. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I found help or confirmation from an old American theologian named Jonathan Edwards in yeah. the 18th century. And Jonathan Edwards, as he talks about the virtue of humility, he talks about humility as being a proper excellency only of a created nature. So, so hmm. what he's saying here is that humility is something that is proper to the creature. Hmm. So if someone asked the question, is God humble? It's a tricky question. Because on the one hand, God's not the opposite of humble. He is not arrogant. He is not prideful. And so there's this instinct in us to say, oh, you know, God's not that. You know, he's not that. So he must be humble. But... Edwards is saying, and I think the biblical texts bear out, that the biblical texts don't talk about God, pre-incarnate, as humble. Hmm. Humble is something that is proper to the creature, where the creature realizes and owns his creatureliness. Hmm. And Edwards also says that that humility consists radically in a sense of comparative lowness and littleness before God. Hmm. So true humility acknowledges he's God and I'm not. Yeah. And true humility acknowledges He's powerful, and my power is infinitesimally small compared to him. He's big, yeah. and I'm little, <laughs> yeah, not in sure. a way that is 
untruthfully demeaning, but in a way that is embracing the truth of the world as the way it is in created by God and what it means to be human. So I I put that at the heart of humility. And there are other aspects, and and we'll say more about that in a minute when we talk about the incarnation, but but there's at the heart of what it means to be humble. Yeah. And you you've clearly delineated, you know, that that the Bible says for us to, to humble ourselves and but at the same time, you know, I <laughs> see Christians, it's, it, it's a hard thing to do. What, what are some of the reasons we struggle with this humbling um, so much? We're sinners. Uh, yeah. And at the heart of that is, is pride. It's, hmm. As Lewis talked about, is, is to create evil. Uh, that's the sin into which we're all born. That's the sin that remains in us, there's indwelling sin after we've come to faith in Christ and been born again. There's a lifelong battle yeah. to have with sin. Yeah. So that, that's, that's one reason, first and foremost. Another sure. one is the context of the call to humble yourself is a context of pain, hmm. hurt. It's a difficult context. So the, the humble yourself call biblically doesn't come to comfortable, cushy Christians in the best of times. Hmm. It comes in contexts that are the worst of times when people Hmm. have been humbled by God's mighty hand. And then the call comes to humble yourself. And so one of the reasons that we're reticent to humble ourselves is humbling hurts. Yeah. When God's humbling hand descends, we are often caught off guard. Hmm. Sometimes the sin in us provokes us to want to blame him. Hmm. or want to explain it away. Like we recoil naturally in these times. One of the most famous humble yourself texts, perhaps in the church is second Chronicles seven fourteen. Mm-hmm. If my people who are called by my name should humble themselves and pray and seek right. my face and I'll hear them, I'll hear, I'll heal their land. I heard that a lot growing up. For South sure. Carolina. Me too. Me too. One thing you don't typically hear <laughs> When that text is quoted is verse 13. Okay. <laughs> we hear verse 14, <laughs> but verse 13 says, this is God speaking. When I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain hmm. or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, wow. global pandemic. Yeah. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves. (laughs) And and that fits in the pattern that then plays out in Second Chronicles and across the scriptures that God takes the initiative. He first acts. He brings something difficult, painful, uncomfortable, humbling into our lives. And then the question comes to us, will you humble yourself? Will you receive his uncomfortable work? And so because of that very context, genuine self-humbling is... A miracle. Yeah. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. It has mm-hmm. divine fingerprints on it. And uh, it is, there's an overcoming of our native sin and rebellion to do it. And that doesn't mean we can't. Yeah. That means we need help. Yeah. And so sure. one thing we can do, and we talk about in the book, is trying to prepare our souls ahead of time to be soft, to be receptive to God's humbling work when it comes. Yeah. Kind of jumping around a little bit on the questions, but kind of it makes me think of the question um, you talk about in the book about we're unique, this idea that each individual is unique and special and, and we all win a trophy. And even if how does that how does that play into this um, and how does this affect our our view of ourselves and our view of God um, when we're talking about this, the subject of, of humbled? So I grew up in the 1980s. I won't make a pretense that every listener or every reader had the same upbringing in the same location uh, and same times. But boy, when I was growing up, I sure heard messages about you are special. You are great. You can do whatever you want if you put your mind to it over and over again. It was so thin. And in my pride and in my sin, it was very easy for me to take that message of you are special and use it in the wrong way. Hmm. So I do think there are some very important ways that we say to humans and we yeah. say to Christians that you are special. Yeah. There, there is some real specialness yeah. for us to know about and observe. And then there's some 
inappropriate contexts okay. for us stroking our specialness. Yeah. So one is humans are clearly depicted as special in created by God in the created realm, different than the animals. Mm-hmm. Humans are the pinnacle of creation. As much as an evolutionary worldview wants to tell us something different or challenge that in certain degrees, humans biblically are special in the divine image. Yeah. And so we together as the human race are, it's appropriate for us to think of ourselves as special hmm. related to the animals. Right. Another kind of specialness for those who are in Christ, this is a, a double specialness for those who are in Christ. We have been bought with a price by God himself in the blood of his own son. There is a specialness that comes in being a Christian, being a believer, being born again as part of the church, part of the redeemed, part of the chosen. That's not a specialness that we then look on non-believers in a prideful way or a demeaning way because our specialness as being chosen by God is not owing to our own doing. Hmm. It's not about our qualities, not about our skill, not about our pedigree. It's about the amazing grace of God Almighty. And so it's a specialness that hopefully, if we, if we hear it right, a specialness that we receive in humility. Hmm. And another specialness that I, I think I should make provision for before I dump on the wrong specialness. <laughs> another specialness <laughs> to make provision for is the specialness that we know among family and friends. Hmm. Hmm. I think it's okay for my sons to know they're special to their dad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're, they're my only sons for my daughters right. to know they're special to their dad. Um, I see them. I love them. I care for them with a special love as their father. Hmm. And for my wife to know that her husband sees her, loves her, cares for her with an exclusive special love hmm. as my wife yeah and for friends to know specialness I and mean, I mean, grandparents love to use special language with their <laughs> grandchildren I, I can make provision for that right however a danger for sinners who are prideful is to take that communication of specialness and then to want to use it over and against other humans in inappropriate ways. To think of our own qualities, think of our abilities, think that 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 uh, that various practices and norms and commandments apply to others, but don't really reply to, apply to me. Hmm. I've got my own way of thinking about myself as special that hmm. I'm a cut above, that I'm outside hmm. the norm, um, and that's the kind of specialness I want to speak against, and a kind of specialness that I, I think in particular. This, this is the, perhaps the zinger, uh, a kind of specialness that commitment to a local church hmm. really rings out of us. Wow. <laughs> I, think, I think one of the most uh, important things that you can do to try to understand your specialness right is commit to a local church that is faithful to God's word, yeah. faithful and submissive to his word, but with all of its warts, yeah. all of its peculiarities, all of its difficult people, the body of Christ, when it's mature, mm-hmm. uh, when we are linked together by the blood of Jesus, has a way of bringing together people who would not be together except for the blood of Jesus. That's true. And so that makes some difficult interactions. We, we don't associate typically with people that seem as weird to us in other aspects of life as we do in the local church. Yeah. And so I think one of the, the most significant practical things you can do to get your sense of specialness in the right places, yeah. right, is to be committed to a local church so you don't bail on, that yeah. you go through the hardships and you learn to think, I am special together with this people, hmm. not in distinction from this people. Wow. We are special together in Christ, in hmm. God Almighty, and I'm, I'm not special in contradistinction. Hmm. Wow. That's John. And I think the same could apply to, to missionaries. You know, I, uh, some of my 
best friends. Probably if we weren't missionaries, we probably wouldn't even know each other. And we probably wouldn't have not. We're, we're different mm-hmm. in age. We're different in background. We're different in likes and dislikes, but is the family of God and serving and working and traveling together. Um, it creates, as you said, a bond of, of family and specialness that because of the blood of Christ that's brought us together. So for sure, that definitely, um, definitely, definitely resonates, definitely resonates. Um, you talk about also that um, this this humbling at God's lead. Um, can you just share a little bit more about that? And is that something you've experienced yourself? And and what did you learn during that process? So in, my first disclaimer would be uh, this book is not based on my experience, yeah. <laughs> but what the scriptures plainly teach about the self yeah, self humbling language. Sure. However, uh, I indeed as as all have, all listeners, all readers had my moments of acute humbling. Um, There are a few families very close to us who have experienced significant, painful, unexpected losses that we have felt acutely with them. Uh, There's an acute experience of being passed over for a job. I really wanted at the time. Um, There are many occasions in marriage (laughs) of being humbled by my wife's irrefutable observations yeah, (laughs) about my sin, my weakness, memorable observations. Um, there were, and for me personally, as I, as I think about my most humbling moments before being married, there were some very humbling breakups that I didn't want. Yeah. And, uh, those really, those can really strike to the core. Sure. Uh, I, I can, um, those help me imagine a little bit how painful a divorce can hmm. be to someone. Hmm. Um, when someone in the context of a dating relationship or a marriage relationship, uh, what word do we use? Rejects yeah. you so personally uh, and so deeply in that yeah. way. So it, th- those are some contexts yeah, for sure. uh, of, of humbling. But, but again, the, the main point, I, I don't write about myself yeah. in the book. It's a very short little book. Yeah. Um, and the emphasis is the study on scripture, self-humbly, self-humbling language. So I'm, I'm not explicitly sharing from my experiences. The right. biblical texts drive it. Oh, for sure. And, uh, and, and that's what, it, what really shows us what it means to, to humble ourselves. So I, I would not say... Uh, Hey, I discovered these things years ago, and for right. decades I've been living this out. Like right. it, it, it's relatively new yeah. to me in putting together the pieces. For sure. And so, to the degree that it's faithful to Scripture, I hope it'll be helpful. Uh, and so, if someone reads this, and as you put these put this together, this this idea of humbled in God's lead, maybe that contradicts their their view of God in the sense that they would they would never imagine that God would lead them to a, as you, you shared a difficult time, a, a, a trying time. What words of wisdom could, have you gleaned from these scriptures that maybe would be used to encourage somebody that they're, that they're challenged by this, that God would lead me. I'd be humble because God was leading me into that. Well, one is uh, I want to know the true God. Hmm. Not, not the one of my imagination or preference. Hmm. And I suspect that deep down the person that would ask that question or have yeah. that, that heart, I, I think they, they want that too. Yeah. If, if we read the Bible and it mainly affirmed what we already instinctively believed and thought, it would sure <laughs> seem like this is not the book from God. If this is a book from God himself, which I believe it is, yes, then I think we will regularly be corrected, hmm. reproved, rebuked, humbled yeah. by what it has to say. Yeah. And this, this theme of how to humble yourselves is one of those. Yeah. And, 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 it, and admittedly, in a way for me that I was not expecting in coming to do the study, yeah. uh, just how God-centered Hmm. Uh, the scripture's perspective are on how a project of self-humbling even gets out, out of the gate to begin with. Yeah. So, uh, so I think that'd be the first thing to say is as painful as, as it is, uncomfortable as it is, uh, do you want the true God hmm. forever? Hmm. Or do you want to reaffirm 
the figment of your own imagination for a very brief vapors time. Yeah. And uh, that may be one, one place to go. Yeah. Uh, sure. In, in answering that question. For sure. For sure. Um, we've talked you've shared about uh, Moses. We've talked about second Chronicles, which I would imagine that's probably not a book that a lot of people spend, at least when I was growing up in the church, we didn't spend a whole lot of time in second Chronicles. Um, but as we move to, to what can we learn about Christ? Cause you mentioned that you pre pre-incarnate and then you incarnate Christ um, himself. How can we apply the lessons from his life? Um, you know, for each and every day. Well, the key text is Philippians 2, and uh, I think maybe one of the most striking claims in the Bible Hmm. is in Philippians 2, and it says, he humbled himself, Hmm. because we are talking about God himself. We're talking about the eternal second person of the Trinity. Yeah. He humbled himself. And uh, so two things there in the context of Philippians 2. The first, to confirm our working definition of humility, the first is that the verb emptied himself is used, so to speak, of the son taking humanity. Hmm. So he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So the emptying of self it, it, it's not an emptying of divinity or divine power, as if that were even possible. The emptying of himself is the subjecting himself to the pains, limitations, constraints, the sinful environment of our world that it would mean in taking our humanity. So mm. it is a emptying by taking, if mm. you want to stay strictly with what Philippians 2 says. He wow, emptied himself taking. That's interesting. So he, he didn't lose any of his eternal divine attributes. He took in addition to his person, a human heart, mind, will, body, and came into our environment. So he emptied himself, becoming man. And then verse eight, being found in human form, he humbled himself Hmm. by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the fact that obedience would be explicitly highlighted there, I think confirms that we are getting our orientation in, in the right direction from yeah. Exodus 5 and 10, talking about Pharaoh and God's call for obedience. Yeah. So uh, obedience gets at the heart of what it means for one to humble oneself, hmm. which is first and foremost a virtue that happens before God. Hmm. And we see humility on the, on, the, on the human level, the horizontal level, and it, it's appropriate. It's critical. Uh, we, we, we intuitively appreciate humility in yeah. others. For sure. But humility is first and foremost before God. It is a divine obedience hmm. uh, that is first and foremost at the heart of it. So that'd be one thing, one lesson to learn. Even Christ himself, God himself in human flesh obeyed hmm. his father. Hmm. So it is not inhuman. It is not subhuman to obey an appropriate authority. And first and foremost, God himself. And hmm. there, is a, there is an anti-obedience anti-commandment streak in modern Western thought and culture. And maybe it's just human. It's just timelessly human in our sin, in our rebellion, that we don't want to acknowledge God and obey him. And it's as old as the garden. Hmm. But at the very heart of humility is acknowledging who God is as Lord, as Hmm. God, and myself as creature, and obeying. And then to put a little more flesh on it from Philippians 2, Verses three and four, the charges that Paul gives the Philippian church and all Christians in verses three and four are what leads him then into talking about Christ self-humbling. So verses three and four, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, Hmm. but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Hmm. Verse four, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So let me just say, that's very practical. <laughs> yeah, for, for sure. <laughs> a, a modern for Christians sure. moan about, oh, I'm practical. I'll just be practical. And that, that's really practical. You want practical? Count <laughs> others more significant than yourself. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so uh, bringing that to bear in our lives, which none of us do perfectly, but it's an amazing thing. By the help of the Holy Spirit, uh, wow. real progress 
can be made, life-changing progress, changing for your own life and for the lives of others, and looking not only to your own interests, which we do so intuitively well, but looking to the interests of others as a father, as a dad, as a pastor, as a worker, as a friend, as a family member. Seek to make that practical. Seek to manifest that in your own life. The fact that Jesus Christ himself, God himself in the flesh, did that Hmm. as human. Hmm. is a great dignifying and calling for us as humans to follow in his steps. Wow. Wow. And that is, um, yeah, that's a, a challenge for us all. And um, you yes. eloquently uh, highlighted that in the text. And uh, wow. Yeah. As you said, sometimes we, we do, we do say we want some practical things at the same time, as you, you said, verse three and four, that's about as practical <laughs> as, about as practical is. As, 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 as we can get. And um I think it's when I when I read the book and went through it, I, it just it just screamed to me. It made me realize, and maybe as you said, it maybe it is just a human thing, and maybe it's it's um, been like this for for all time. But this, as you talked about it, this um, disobedient streak and to rebel against mm-hmm. authority and develop, develop rebel against that is um, it just really stuck out to me, and. Um, yeah, and that's where many of the people are listening to the podcast. We're around the world, and we're uh, we're trying to share the love of Jesus Christ and serve in an organization, and at the same time, being obedient to what God has asked us to do for sure, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, any any questions you think, man? I wish Aaron would have asked me this question. Uh, the questions uh, that uh, maybe you thought were important that I missed. I could finish up with number nine. Yeah, go ahead. I, I think I, I think I'm leaving a big piece out if there I don't you say anything about number nine. But that's, sure. that's fine. That's awesome. Go ahead. Um, one of the questions you sent me ahead of time yeah. was any actions that we can begin today for sure to put into practice in our daily lives. That's so it. the the main point, the the first big point in the book is that you don't start humility on your own times and terms, hmm. but God initiates. However, is there anything I can do to prepare for when yeah. God takes the initiative? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, two lessons in particular, as, you, as we track out the language, the self-humbling language. One is we humble ourselves in response to God's word. So again and again, in Second Chronicles, throughout the scripture, going back to Pharaoh and Moses, Moses is the prophetic mouthpiece instrument for Yahweh's word to Pharaoh. So how we respond to God's word is at the heart of what it means to humble ourselves. And so one way to prepare ourselves for those humbling moments when they come is what patterns, what habits are we putting in place to respond rightly to God's word? Amen. So one very practical daily thing is do we put ourselves under God's word on a daily basis? Are we practicing, receiving, obeying, humbling ourselves before God's word Hmm. on a daily basis? And this also happens in corporate worship as we gather as Christians, as God's word is read, as God's word is preached, do we receive that word in humility? Do we receive the authority of God's word or do we make excuses and, and, off, and offer critical, cynical things about it? Do, do we kind of want to put ourselves side by side with God's word, always in analysis mode? Hmm. Or do we receive it as the words of the living God to shape our soul? Hmm. So one is, would be, uh, what practices do you put in place for how you hear and receive God's word? Sure. And another would be is, what practices do we have in place in our lives individually and corporately for prayer? Hmm. Because prayer is, we might say, the quintessentially self-humbling act. Hmm. To come before God and say, I am needy, you are powerful. Hmm. I'm sinful, you are holy. Hmm. I need you. I am stopping everything else in my life right now to pray. Hmm. Because my own human hands and effort can't make this happening. I'm asking you for something that I can't do on my own if, if we're praying biblically. Yeah. And something that is only going to happen if you will help, if you will do it, if you will empower me or empower others or make the circumstances happen. So prayer is a self-humbling act. And daily patterns of prayer and patterns of corporate prayer in our families, in our churches, prepare us ahead of time for those self-humbling moments when they come. So hear his voice in his word, have yeah. his ear in prayer, 
the last thing I would say is belong to his body. We mentioned earlier about getting specialness in its yeah. right place. Uh, if you join a faithful biblical local church and you stay committed to yeah. the church, don't just bounce the first time, first time things get difficult. The reason we make covenants together is because people have seen for centuries that the time we need each other most is the yeah. time that we're, we're kind of most prone to bounce out. For sure. So commit to being the body of Christ to each other and, and don't bounce when things get hard. That's the time we need each other most yeah. when things get hard. That's the time that God's beaten the pride out of us. That's yeah. the time he's humbling us and providing these opportunities for us to humble ourselves before him. And so belonging to his body in a committed covenantal way is a great way to put patterns in your life now to prepare for these humbling moments when they come. Wow. Wow. David, it's, uh, it's been a joy to spend some time with you today and the passion um, is evident. And will you pray for us today, the wisdom and insight that you have learned um, as you've, you've put these scriptures and passages together in the book you've written, you pray that God will use what you've shared um, for each and every one of us. Would you pray for us today? Thank you, brother. Thanks for having me. I would be honored to pray. So Father in heaven, we come now before you in this quintessentially self-humbling act of prayer. There is no pretense that I or any of our listeners have made admirable strides forward in humility. Uh, Father, we greatly need your help. We are asking for your help. And unpleasant and uncomfortable as your humbling hand, your mighty hand can be when it descends in our lives and accosts us with painful circumstances. Father, we want to be among those who welcome your work when it feels manifestly kind and welcome your work when it feels severe and uncomfortable. Father, we want to know you as God as God Almighty, the creator of all things, sovereign and leading and directing our lives in this world in your good providence, knowing that nothing befalls us that is not under your sovereign, wise hand that you can help us in and rescue us from and that you will bring us eternally into infinite joy in your presence. And so, Father, in light of who you are, in light of what's coming for us in Christ, we want to endure well in the painful circumstances as they come. It is not a matter of whether we'll be humbled or not. The humbling is coming. The humbling will come. And we want to be among those who receive it, Father, by faith. Receive your severe mercy and grace when it's painful and uncomfortable in our lives. And so would you do that now? Prepare our hearts for it now. And would you make us among those who happily say, he is God, I am not, and I am humbly and gladly his servant, and I seek to obey him with my life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.